Well, we've been uh, in a series for ages, forever, uh, for a while now, uh, called Elementary. And we're looking at a passage in Hebrews chapter 6. It's just a couple of verses there. Uh, Chris, can I get the PowerPoint up? Thanks. I might be sat totally in the wrong place now. I've got no idea. Tell me if I need to move. Um, And we've been thinking about what the writer there calls the elementary teachings, the elementary truths uh, about Jesus. He calls them foundational things, the things that need to be uh, in place. And so these are the words we've sort of been um, camping in now for ever, for weeks. Uh, It says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. We're going to be thinking about that uh, a week Sunday, but moving forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of, and then there's a list of things that he considers to be elementary, not necessarily because they're obvious, but because they're so basic to what it means to follow and, and believe in Jesus. So the first is repentance from acts that lead to death. We started, didn't we, this series by thinking about what it means to turn Uh, The fact that this is good news. Remember Jesus' words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. Change is possible. Transformation, healing, restoration, relationship with God is possible. When we repent, we're turning, but we're turning from acts that lead to death. It's a little bit like when you get a a packet of cigarettes, not that I smoke. uh, But on the front, you've got that stark warning, smoking kills. We, we know this, and it's like with his pastoral heart, with his concern for people, he wants to put it as clearly as possible. There are acts that lead to death. There are things that we do, things we believe, things that we lean on, and if we don't turn from them, it would be unloving of me to tell you that there's a type of death in that, both this side of the grave and beyond it. And so turning. Then secondly, faith in God. We don't just turn then, but we trust. And that word in the original language there is a clinging. It's an active thing. It's not just about something that we've ticked off and say, yes, we believe that, or yes, we're part of that club. It's an active clinging, turning, trusting. We thought about taking the plunge for another another tea, instructions about baptism, thinking about what it means to be washed uh, by by Jesus, to be cleansed, to, to take our past and to put it into his death have all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, including in the punishment that he has already taken for us. And then, if you remember, we brought you back out, rising to new life uh, with, with Jesus. And then, I think it was two Sundays ago, we were thinking about the laying on of hands, we were thinking about prayer, uh, and we had a, a practical session together. Just as a quick straw poll, how many people say they really felt the Lord sort of touched them in a special way when we laid hands on each other? Yeah. Praise God. Yeah, real, real special moment together. We'll do that more often. Uh, and then this morning, we're going to be thinking about this last one uh, on this list, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So there's a way in which uh, at small groups, people have been in- engaging with, with scripture together. Uh, if you don't know here at Bethel, we meet on Sundays for, for worship and teaching together. Uh, but one of the best ways that you can really get the most out of church is to engage with a smaller group of people that meet regularly, that get to know you, that share scripture with you, that, that pray for you about the specific things in, in your life. Uh, that's re- a big part of our strategy of how we want to be discipled uh, in the faith. If you're not part of a small group, we would 
would love you to be. I'd love to work out where and when that, that works best for you. Uh, but there's a way in which at small groups, people have been engaging with scripture together. Uh, they've taken the scripture and they've had it read, and then they've paused to think about four questions. I'm not sure this is working, which is it? I might have to just give you the holy nod this morning to get you to move it. There you go. Great. Fantastic. Oh, fun. Um, and so they've, they've paused to think about four questions. This is as subtle as it gets, isn't it? And one more. Good, great. One more. Okay. Um, so the first question is simply this. We've, we've heard the scripture read. The first question is, what spoke to me? The Bible speaks. The word of God is living and active. We, we don't read it just for more information. We read it because when we're reading it right, it reads us. It says something to our lives, our way of being, our way of living, our way of thinking, the order of this world, it, it speaks to them. It's really important that we don't just let our eyes scan down the page, but that we're, we're asking God, what are you saying? What do you, what do you want to say to me? The second question is, uh, is there anything that, that surprised me? So I think we've gone on two there. Don't worry, don't worry. We'll forget about the problem. Uh, what, what surprised me? Was, was there anything that, that took me by surprise? And it's so important, I think, that we still allow the Bible to challenge us, to confront us, to shake us, to, to shock us. So is there anything in this passage I've just read that, that surprises me? The next one, as you've probably already seen, is, is there anything that confused me in this passage? Anything that, as I read it, I sort of tripped up and thought, I don't know how that fits. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means for me. Is there anything that confused me? And then the last question is, what next? This is really important. Jesus, um, some of Jesus' harshest words were for people who knew the truth and did not build on the truth. It does you no good to know it if you don't do anything with it. So what next? What are the next steps? What do I need to do differently? What do I need to, to, to think about differently? How does this actually challenge my world? Otherwise, we're just reading for information's sake. So we're going to give you guys another practical session this morning. Uh, we're going to hear the passage read. We're going to hear it read twice. Often in small groups it will be three times, but just twice this morning. Uh, and there'll be space to think about those four questions. Uh, and then after that, we're going to give you just a few minutes with the people around you to talk about whatever struck you. Very, very often it's not all four of those questions that really leap out at you. Sometimes it's just one Sometimes there's only one thing you need to talk about, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit at work, isn't it? Uh, prompting and, and leading and guiding. So if you're sat somewhere where there's not many people around you, I'm afraid you're going to have to move. You will be watching to make sure you move. Um, and if we notice anybody's on their own, then nobody has to do this, but it'd be lovely just to invite people uh, to come and join us. Uh, also, uh, if there's anybody that really doesn't want to, uh, please don't feel you have to. You can sit with the scriptures and, and read and pray. But I'd encourage you uh, to share and to hear something of what God wants to say through each other. And then we'll come back together and I've got some uh, thoughts to share as well. It's not a Sunday off for me, don't worry. Uh, so why don't we pray as we open God's word together. If you want to open it, it'd be really helpful for you to have a copy of it as well. Bible's available at the back if you want one. 1 Corinthians 15 is the passage. I'm going to pray, then we'll hear it read. There'll be pass uh, times when we can sit in, in quiet and then we'll get you discussing it together. Anybody excited about this? Great. Okay, some nervous nods. That's what we're looking for. Great. Well, let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. 
thank you for this love letter, for this love story. Lord, your word is light in a dark place. Your word is direction in a confusing place. Your word is strength in a shaken place. Your word is food in a hungry place. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you who inspired these very words that we're about to read. The same Spirit who is present with us right now to inspire us. Speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of each other, for fellowship together in Jesus. We thank you for the experience of God in this room, things that you've led us into together and explained and shared with us together. And I thank you that as we open our hearts to each other, there's, there's a sense in which we're sharing Jesus, we're sharing you, we're sharing light and life together. And I pray that that'll happen, Lord, right across this room as we open your word together today. So Lord, as we sit and as we hear and as we read, we ask as we think, we just invite you now, all through of life, come and write your words on our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name. verses 35 to 58. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted into the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, 
but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body. Then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now, like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit, inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture is fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that, that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Some skeptic is sure to ask, show me how resurrection works, give me a diagram, draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you realise how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this kind of thing. We do have a par parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed. Soon, there is a flourishing plant. There is no like visual likeness between seed and plant. You could never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it doesn't look anything alike. 
the dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. You will notice that the variety of bodies is stunning. Just as there are different kinds of seeds, there are different kinds of bodies. Humans, animals, birds, fish. Each unprecedented in its form. You get a hint of the diversity of resurrection glory by, by looking at the diversity of bodies, not only on earth, but in the skies. Sun, moon, stars. All these varieties of beauty and brightness and we're only looking at pre-resurrection seeds. Who can imagine what the resurrection plants will be like? This image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best, but perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body but only if you keep in mind that when we're raised, we're raised for good, alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty, but when it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural, the seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body. But what a difference from when it goes down in physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. We follow this sequence in scripture. The first Adam received life, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Physical life comes first, then spiritual. A firm base shaped from the earth, a final completion coming out of heaven. The first man was made out of earth and people since then are earthy. The second man was made out of heaven and people now can be heavenly in the same way that we've worked from our earthy origins let's embrace our heavenly ends if need to emphasize friends that our natural earthy lives don't in themselves lead us by their very nature into the kingdom of god their very nature is to die. So how could they naturally end up in the life kingdom? But let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery. I'll probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast 
to end all blasts from a trumpet. And in the time from that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment, and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true. Death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word? Oh, death? Oh, death. Who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death as frightening and law code guilt that gave sin its, its leverage, its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our Master, Jesus Christ. Thank God. With all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't, don't look back. Throw yourselves into the work of the Master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Now we need the countdown clock, isn't it, to really get you guys back together. Great. It always, um, it always amazes me for people of faith, people united by their faith, how little we actually talk about our faith together. And it's really good, isn't it, to actually dive into what this means, what it means for me, what it means for us. And I hope that's been helpful. Uh, if having sampled that, you want to... Want some more of it, we can get you into a small group and we'd, we'd love to do that. But what we've been talking about a little bit in our groups today is the life beyond. The great question, the great mystery of what waits for us beyond this life. 
Uh, I was reading uh, recently about a, a researcher called Aubrey de Grey. Uh, he's got an organization called the Methuselah Project. And he believes that aging is a disease that should be treated as such. And so he's trying to develop techniques to lengthen people's lives. Uh, literally, he believes that he can make, uh, cause people to live until they're 150 years old. Anybody fancy that? <laughs> Nobody fancies that? No. Anybody 140-ish that could do with another 10? No. But nevertheless, that's, that's his approach. He has said publicly that if it was possible and he could create some sort of vaccine against death and offer people eternal life, he would do it. And on the back of that claim and on the back of some of the research that he's begun, there are a whole bunch of companies now that are researching this. Who knows the wealthiest man on the planet? Not personally. Who knows their name? <laughs> It's Jeff Bezos, yes. Elon Musk comes a close second, yeah. Yeah, they keep doing this. Uh, Jeff Bezos, the guy that looks increasingly like Lex Luthor, doesn't he? Quite a spooky guy. Uh, he has invested millions and millions uh, into this. Uh, in the Silicon Valley, there's a company that he founded uh, with a number of other researchers and, and scientists called Altos that is looking into this question of how we can extend life perhaps even indefinitely. That's his hope. That's what he's hoping that all his money can buy him. Uh, there's another company called Calico, which stands for Californian Life Company. And this was created or, or funded by the creator of Google. Anybody know his name? It's not Bill Gates, that's um, Microsoft. Um, Larry Page is the guy, which always makes me laugh. I think of a little icon, little Google icon, Mr. Page running around everywhere. Uh, but he has invested millions into this separate company, looking at this whole question, can we delay death as far as we can, perhaps even to its infinite? Can we delay death all the way? Uh, if you don't want to go down that route, there's another route. There's a company, a very controversial one, called Alcor, uh, who believe that cryogenically freezing people uh, is the way forward until there's a, a cure for their disease. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not. I didn't know this. But back in 1967, uh, a psychologist called James Bedford was legally cryogenically frozen. Did you know this? No. And he's waiting for the cure uh, to his disease. He's just sort of lying there in ice. I guess if you're rich enough, if you're powerful enough, if you can buy enough, you eventually face this question, yeah, but when all of this comes to an end, when my legacy, my name, my company, my investments, my health, my body, when it fails me, what awaits me? What is the life beyond? And it's not just the wealthy, it's not just the powerful that face this question. The truth is, as a minister of 18 years, I've faced this question a lot with various different people. And I can promise you, everybody hopes there's more. Everybody. It amazes me how people who want to live as complete atheists, towards the end of their life, want to die as believers, want to think, want to hope, want to know that there's more. And it's not just people of no faith. Sometimes, as people of faith, we wish that there was more. I wish there had been more time. This great question, the one inevitability, the one guarantee, 
in life. We invest in so much, we insure against so much, we think about so much. Yet the one guarantee is the one thing we don't really want to think about all that much. But the statistics prove it. One out of one people die. And because of that, at some point, everyone will face the question, what will happen to me when I die? This life that I've built, this person that I am, when my body goes into the ground, where will I be? What will, what will happen to me? As a minister, of course, I've presided over many funerals. Anybody want to guess what one of the most popular songs that people request for when they're leaving the crematorium is? Anyone got any guesses at all? My Way is number one. Yeah, Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Say again? It's not Abide With Me. No. That's a popular hymn, but it's the music as, as we're leaving. Any ideas? It's not, sadly. That would be a great one. That would be a great one. Well, the second most popular is a song called Time to Say Goodbye. It's a beautiful song. The third most popular, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. The third most chosen song. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a song, as you probably know, from a film. We kind of forget now that it's from a film because Eva Cassidy sang it so beautifully uh, and made it sound like it was more than a farm girl hoping for an exciting life. The song itself is not about heaven. The girl daydreaming about what might await her if she's managed to escape the, the mundane, literally black and white world that she lived in. But we've taken it and somehow made it into a hope for heaven, made it into a hope for a life after death. Maybe there is something somewhere over the rainbow. Jesus did not come into this world, live his life, teach his disciples and leave us with this legacy and go to the cross and die so that we would think there might be somewhere over the rainbow. He came so that we would know the certainty of a father that loves us, of sin forgiven, of death defeated, of a home, a house, that's what he calls it, my father's house, which has so much room that awaits us. And so we come to the mystery of, of these verses today. Uh, Paul writes here in these verses, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. He's, he's stealing a kind of an analogy, a, a picture from the world of gardening, from the world of, of farming. And he says, when you plant something, what's going to come out of that tiny seed will look entirely different. In fact, to the untrained eye, most seeds will look the same. You, most of us, unless we've had experience of it, will not be able to guess from, from the seeds. And even if you have some experience, some are so similar, it'd be really difficult to know. But in this analogy, we're the seed. Now, in Corinth, um, which is where this letter was written to, if there was a Silicon, Silicon Valley sorry, uh, in the first century, it was Corinth. That's where you went if you had a business startup idea. That's where you went if you wanted to be rich or powerful or, or famous. Everybody that went there was trying to make a name for themselves or, or kind of build their, their little empire. Uh, and uh, one of the things that was happening was as these kind of people were becoming Christian, uh, they were sort of adapting the faith to how it enhances my life now. How can being a Christian make me a better 
business person or, or make me a better seeming person to others. It was, it was to do with, with appearances in, in, in some regards. And there was a group of people that were saying, all this talk about life after death, we, we don't really understand any of that. So why don't we just ditch the teaching about the resurrection of the dead uh, and life eternal and, and just focus on, on the here and now? And of course, for Paul, these words are blasphemy, they're, they're heresy. And he, he writes passionately throughout this whole chapter and throughout this whole letter uh, about the fact that if we throw that away, our, our hope is in vain. If we don't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we won't be raised from the dead. And if it's only for this life we've got hope, we're to be pitied above all people. And so he's writing here passionately. And it's like in these verses he wants to say, of course, when you plant a seed, it doesn't know it's going to become a oak tree. It doesn't know it's going to become an apple tree or whatever it's going to be. It, it can't tell from what it is right now. So he's saying to them, don't look at this body that we live in, this life that we have now, and from that think, well, I just can't imagine what eternal life will be like. He says here, what a foolish question. Of, of course we can't. Because as we are right now, we, we just see it. It's an amazing thought, isn't it, that when the time comes for each and every one of us that are trusting in Jesus, uh, that have invested our life in Jesus, when we're buried, the more appropriate word for us is planted. We're planted, and something new begins to grow. Something new begins to happen. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. That's an important word in Corinth. We'll come back to that now. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He says, as, as we are right now, we can't imagine living forever. We can't imagine what it would be like to be forever in the presence of God. We, we get glimpses of it. We get tastes of it. We long for it. But we can't possibly begin to imagine what it's going to be like. It's entirely different. Now our bodies are, are perishable. And we know that, don't we? But fragile things get hit with all kinds of things. Viruses, mental struggles, addictions, uh, longings. They're all entangled in, in the body. We have a body that is perishable, but it will be raised imperishable. We will have a, a perfect body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's, it's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown natural. It's raised spiritual. In Corinth, one of the things that kind of showed your status to people uh, was your clothing. Now, I know this will strike us as odd in our society today that there was a culture that so prized clothes that it meant that, that was your status, but there was such a day, believe it or not. Uh, this was true for the Greek society in, uh, in general. In, in Corinth, it, this thing just exploded. Uh, and the rule was the more money you had, the more importance, the more status you had, because you could buy governors on your side, you could buy more land, you could buy more power. Uh, and you represented that by the number of clothes that you wore. I'm not kidding. 
So most people would have a, a, a sheet that they wrapped around themselves, a single sheet. Uh, the more money you had, the, the bigger the sheet got. If you had one horse, you could have a, um, another sort of sash on you as well. And so it went, and, and so it went. And of course, in the church, as Paul worked there for years to, to plant this church, uh, there's an explosion of faith. But by and large in Corinth, it's amongst the poor, it's amongst the, uh, the, the neglected, the forgotten parts of, of society. We read those words there, it's sown in, in dishonor. In Corinth, honor was the thing that everybody went after. To be honored, to have people stand when you walk in a room. For your name on something to, to mean it goes through quicker. To have your name, now we like it up in lights these days, they liked it up in marble. To have your name on a pillar, wow, that meant that you'd made it. And this was the drive, this was the focus. And to this church, Paul writes about something that's going to happen to them. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. Now the word mystery in the Greek is not quite how we mean the word mystery in the English language today. Uh, usually when we say the word mystery, it's something um, unknowable. It's something that we can't grasp. Sometimes we use it as a, as a cop-out, don't we? It's, well, it's, it's just a mystery. Uh, but in the Greek, what it means is something that has been or is yet to be revealed, something that is being unveiled by God himself. And so when Paul calls this a mystery, he's not saying it's unknowable. He's not saying it's, um, it's a cop-out. What he's saying is God is revealing this to us. I tell you this amazing revelation, this amazing mystery, and these words that have been on so many church crashes stores, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a flash, thank you, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now these words for a church of dishonor, a church that were laughed at for their belief, in the resurrection of the dead, laughed at for their faith in Jesus, for their hope in heaven. For the perishable must clothe itself, not with more layers, not with more status, not with more importance, but with the imperishable. The mortal with the immortal. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written shall come true. Death has been swallowed up wrapped up, encased in victory. Amazing words, amazing hope uh, that we have in Jesus. So we've been thinking today about four questions, and I'm not sure how far you got in your groups on those questions about what spoke to you, about what surprised you or, or confused you. Uh, probably if you got to the fourth question, that might have been the trickiest one of this, in a passage like this to answer. What next? Well, surely I've just got to, I'm a seed, I've just got to wait for the resurrection, right? I've just got to wait to grow. Well, I, I think there are, there are a few what-nexts straight out of this passage. The first thing I want to say to everyone today is that if you haven't invested your life, your whole self, with trust in Jesus, do it now. And Paul starts this passage, this chapter, by saying, Listen, I'm going to tell you some things of primary importance. Paul was clear that there's things of secondary importance, there's things that we can disagree about, there's things we can do differently. At one point he writes to them, he says, I think I've got the mind of Christ. 
He says, this is of primary importance. If you're not right with God, get right with God. Because Jesus has done it all for us. So that when the time comes for us to be raised, it will not be about how good we've been or what we know or what we don't know or how much we've paid or how often we've been to church or any of those things. It will come down to one question. Whose righteousness are you wearing? Are you standing there as yourself? Or have you asked Jesus to wrap his forgiveness, his perfect life around you? The Bible says really clearly it's destined for man to live once and then to die and then to face the judgment. I'd be lying to you if I told you that wasn't what's going to happen to each and every one of us. And you can, if you want to, plan to stand there alone. Or, and why anybody would not do this, or you can ask Jesus to stand in your place. And he's wanting to do that for each and every living person. He wants to do that for you. If you haven't asked him to do that, you can do that now. You can do that today. Heaven is a prayer away. Anybody that trusts Jesus. That's the first one then. The second one I find really interesting, right at the end of this passage, that Paul actually, although this has got a lot to do with our past, you know, we, we will be changed. You know, who we were is not who we are, and who we are is not who we're going to become. So it's about both our past and our future, and we can read these verses in that way, but that's not how Paul applies it here. Paul applies it to our present. He says, therefore... Since we are people who are invested in Jesus, waiting for heaven, destined for glory, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing that you do for Jesus is in vain. You know, we can go for names on pillars. Or we could go for clothes, or we can invest in our CV, our portfolio, our Facebook profile image, whatever it is. All of those things will fail. All of those things will fade. And we get offered here a gift that will last forever, eternally secure. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing shake you. Let nothing move you, because this is guaranteed <coughs> through Jesus. And because your work now is, is not in vain. And one more, what next, before we come to pray together. There's another church that Paul is writing to in a place called uh, Thessaloniki. Uh, and to them, he, he picks up this same theme about our hope, our hope in Jesus. And what that's going to mean, not just on the day we die, but right now and then forever. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. The word in, in the Greek is uh, ignorant about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul says there's something different about us as a family of believers as we journey through seasons of mourning and grieving together. He doesn't tell us we don't grieve, but he says we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have a hope 
that holds when it matters. We have a hope that holds us when it matters. And so we do miss people. Of course we do. It'd be weird not to. Of course there's a hole left in our lives by loved ones that we've walked with, that we've been with, that we've prayed with, that we've journeyed with. Of course there is. But they are not lost. We know where they are. And we have a hope that means we do not grieve in the same way at all. He goes on to say this. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. They're with Jesus. So when Jesus returns, they're coming with, with him. And so I want to pray this 